Corinth. It's just a rough church. I mean, we've, we've covered issue after issue after issue with, with the church at Corinth now over the last year and a half or so as we've walked through this, this letter to the Apostle Paul of just things that they misbelieve and in misbelieving they misbehave, right? They're not, I mean, they're not thinking right. They're not believing right. They're not living right. They're not worshiping right. Uh, there's just not a whole lot right going on in, in the church at Corinth. And it seems that um, of all of the issues that, that we've, we've seen, of all of the problems that they have, there, there is one uh, pretty much that Paul saved for last. And that is that there are some in the church at Corinth that deny a bodily resurrection. Christianity in its early days was unique in that it was the only religion of the world that claimed a resurrection. Pagan religions... While they may have believed in an afterlife, they, they did not believe in a bodily resurrection from the grave. Christianity was unique in that. So what it, it seems that has, has taken place in Corinth is, remember, these are, these are brothers and sisters that, that you know, have heard the gospel preached through the Apostle Paul, his time there. Apollos that followed, um, teachers and pastors there within the church. They've been saved in these pagan religions but they, they've brought some of those practices into the church. You know, I mean, we, we spent months looking at this ecstatic speech that they, they brought into it. Don't want to rehash that. But it seems that they've, they've brought in this belief that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. Period. They've brought that in to the church. What Paul is showing them is that if you believe that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead, then that has to mean that Christ has not been raised. Now, this may come as a surprise to you. It shouldn't. We are rather insulated just because we're church people. But there are some today who still doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ most often that takes the form of, of an unbeliever who doubts the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, I remember a few years ago, and I'm sure it'll, it'll be on in the next few weeks as we get close to Easter because that's when, you know, the History Channel and the Discovery Channel, they want to start running shows um, about Jesus. Do you remember when they, there was this show, that this, this amazing discovery that they had, had found this ossuary, this, this box that holds bones, and it had inscribed on it the name Jesus. And so they claim we've, we have found the bones of, of Jesus of Nazareth, right? These, these are people who, who doubt the, the resurrection. And they, they, they're trying scientific means to, to prove, the, prove that. Obviously, there are no bones of Jesus. That was not his bones. Um, but there are people today who still doubt the resurrection. There, there are even people in the church... They can claim to believe in, in Jesus Christ, yet doubt that he was physically risen from the dead. It's happening in Corinth, and that can certainly happen here. But see, there is a big problem 
with that. There's a big problem in denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, you cannot be a Christian. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can believe in everything else. You can believe that God created the world in perfect harmony, that sin entered the world, that man in their relationship with God was fractured and that that sin brought the penalty of death and that God in His grace sent His Son in the flesh to live a perfect life and to die on the cross. You can believe all of that. But if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then none of that belief counts for anything. You're not a Christian. That's Paul's argument to the church at Corinth. That's what chapter 15 really is. It is this this ongoing argument from the Apostle Paul for a resurrection from the dead. Not just Jesus' resurrection from the dead, although... His resurrection from the dead is what guarantees our resurrection from the dead. But it's an argument for the bodily resurrection from the dead, both Jesus Christ and every believer in Him. Now Paul's going to form this argument really in sort of three categories. The first part is a theological argument. That's what we're going to look at today in verses 12 through 19. It's a a theological argument. You're going to see this um, work out as, as Paul moves through it. You'll see it. It'll, it'll make perfect sense. The, the second part of his argument is an eschatological argument. Eschatological is hard to spell. Good luck with that. Um, it's, it's an argument based on the end times. It's based on the end. It's based on what will happen. And then the, the third is an experiential argument. What has been experienced in believers up until this point. So Paul is is writing to show the church there in Corinth and to show us the absolute necessity of the resurrection. Church, I want you to understand that the resurrection is not inconsequential. The resurrection is not just a part of what we believe. The resurrection is not something that just comes up around Easter. But if you remove the resurrection, then there are serious consequences. Serious consequences. A resurrection of Jesus Christ forms... For the Christian belief, a cornerstone. Without which, there are consequences. And Paul gives, in these verses, a logical progression of the consequences. We've got those in Corinth saying that there is no bodily resurrection. And so Paul says, listen, if you believe that, then these seven things are a result of that. That's 
It's how important a resurrection is. You take it away, these seven things happen. You'll see these logical progression of the seven disastrous consequences. If there is no bodily resurrection, then first, Christ has not been raised from the dead. You see that? Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, as Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, right? How can you... Paul's, Paul's asking this question here. If we're proclaiming Christ as raised from the dead, how can you say that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead? How can you say this? It's incompatible. See, like I said, these, these brothers and sisters in, in Corinth, they're not ridding themselves from their previous beliefs, but they're taking them in. They're believing in Jesus, yet they're continuing to believe that there is no bodily resurrection. In verse 13, here's the, the consequence, the first. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, period, and not even Christ has been raised. If you take away a physical bodily resurrection, then you have to take away the resurrection of Christ. If you deny bodily resurrection, then you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They go together because Jesus Christ was a man. He was human, fully human. And if you take away bodily resurrection of humans, then you take away the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ because he was a man. That's, that's the implication of, of their belief. No bodily resurrection, no bodily resurrection, then Jesus Christ hasn't been raised. Now, if Christ has not been raised... then there are some serious consequences. And here's the second. If you believe you doubt a bodily resurrection, you deny a bodily resurrection, then that means that Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then second, our preaching is useless. You see it in verse 14, the next verse. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. This word vain here means useless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is of no effect. Our preaching is useless. Now, it's important to note what Paul means when he says our preaching. He is not talking about the physical act of preaching. What Paul is talking about here is the content of his preaching. It's the message of his preaching. If Christ has not been raised then the content, the message of what we preach is useless. It's of no effect. It is powerless. Now, I want you to remember that Paul has just clarified what it is that he preaches, what this message is, what this content is. You can see it starting in verse 1. Now, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. 
So when Paul says this preaching, our preaching is in vain, what he's saying is, is that the gospel message is in vain. The gospel message is useless. If you take away the resurrection, then the the gospel message is powerless. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This was the message. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the central part of the apostles' message. It was the central part of the gospel proclaimed by all the apostles. They didn't just proclaim Jesus a good man. They didn't just proclaim Jesus a good teacher. They didn't just proclaim Jesus a good prophet. Islam proclaims that. They proclaimed Christ crucified for your sins, buried, and on the third day Risen to new life. The resurrection was the central part of the message. And the reason is because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then he is not the Savior. He is not the Son of God. If he did not raise from the dead, then there was no purchasing of our redemption. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the validation of Christ's redemptive work. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, how was Jesus declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Scripture? It was by His resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the validating stamp of God that Jesus is who He said He is. That he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, that his death on the cross was the singular redemptive act in all of human history to pay the penalty of sin. It was the resurrection that was the validation. If he did not rise, then there is no use in preaching the gospel because the gospel hangs on the resurrection. Paul says, Christ didn't rise and our preaching is in vain. But not only that, but if our, if our preaching, if our message is useless, if the gospel is useless, then our faith is useless. That's number three. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Your faith is useless. Your faith is powerless. Your trust in Jesus Christ has no effect because if Jesus didn't 
rise from the dead, then he isn't the Savior and your faith means nothing. You see the logical consequences here of denying the resurrection. If there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ has not been risen from the dead. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, then the message we've preached to you is useless because it was a message of resurrection. If our message that we preach to you is useless, then what you believed is useless. It's useless. It's useless. It's all built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no bodily resurrection. Christ has not been raised from the dead. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. And then, fourthly, all the apostles are false witnesses. Look at verse 15, the next verse. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it's true that the dead are not raised. Paul says, listen, if there is no bodily resurrection, then Jesus Christ has not been raised. And if Jesus Christ has not been raised, then we're all a bunch of liars. Now, who's the we? Right? We are found to be misrepresenting God. Who are, who, who's the we? Now, to find out who the we is, we got to go look at some verses we skipped. Because you were thinking, Jason, you skipped some verses. So look back up at verse 5. So we, we have this explanation of the scriptures from the scriptures of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was risen on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That there was a, an appearing, a bodily appearing to this man Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Now, we do not know exactly when this took place. We, we don't have a record of Christ's first appearance to Peter. We do know that it was sometime between Jesus appearing to, to Mary and Jesus appearing to, to the men on the Emmaus Road. Somewhere in between there, Jesus made his appearance to, to Peter. Now, there's a lot of questions as to why, you know, Peter seems to come first here. And, and I think there's some pretty good answers for that. I mean, one, you know, Peter is you know, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That there was this confession of Peter that Jesus Christ is Lord on which the whole church has been built. It's not that the church was built on Peter. Catholics don't have that right. Church is built on the proclamation that Peter gave that Jesus is the son of the living God. But I think it's, it's remarkable that Jesus, he makes his appearance. He says from the onset, I got to go find Peter. Because he messed up. I mean, he messed up. He denied me over and over and over again. So I got to go and I got to show him I'm a God of grace. I'm a God that forgives. We don't know when exactly he showed himself to Peter, but there is one thing that is certain. That is, that is that Christ post-resurrection only made himself known to those he chose to, to make himself known to. 
right? I mean, he's walking with these guys on the Emmaus Road. They got no clue who he is until he decides in his sovereignty, you're going to know who I am. I'm going to open your eyes. So he appears to Cephas. That's one of the we are even found to be representing God. Continuing in verse 5, then to the 12. Then to the 12. Now, these are the, uh, the disciples. They're still called the 12, even though Judas is, is gone. He's not one of them at this point. Matthias has not been brought in. Still called the 12, even though it's 11. These men, the apostles, they, they laid the foundation of the church from the beginning. That the, the church's beliefs and practices came from these men. And the way that, that we know these men are, are trustworthy is that they have an eyewitness account, right? I mean, one of the, the requirements to be an apostle, according to the book of Acts, is that you must have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. In verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why is this important? Listen, one could say, and it has been said, that a small group of of people like the 12, the 11 disciples, and you throw in Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, that they could have all gotten together, being a relatively small number of people, they could have all gotten together and they could have all got their stories straight and they could have huddled together and said, look, I mean, we believe that this man was the son of God. We need to keep that going. So we're going to say that he was raised from the dead and we saw him, okay? Everybody got that? Everybody good? You, you got to keep this, this, this movement going, right? I mean, it's theoretically possible for a small group of people to get all on the same page and and all tell the same lie, right? Now, I will agree with these apologists who say that it is certainly possible that men will live a lie, but it is highly doubtful that men are willing to die for a lie. They gave their lives for this. I mean, I promise you, if it wasn't true, as Peter hung, crucified, upside down, He would have recanted. But it wasn't just those men, was it? No, Jesus Christ appeared to 500 people at one time. You know what that is? That is too large of a group of people to be making the same story up. There would be inconsistencies. This is a great band of eyewitnesses that together form a trustworthy account. It's interesting that it seems that the church even knew exactly who these 500 people were, right? Because what's, what's Paul say? Some have fallen asleep, but a great many of them are alive. That means he has to know who they are. He has to know whether they're alive or or dead. So there are 500 people that Jesus Christ has appeared before. Some of who are alive, you can go ask them. A few have, have died. We know who they are. You go and ask them, and they will all tell you the exact same thing. So if you don't believe me, you don't believe the, the other 11, then there's 500 people out there. But 
Paul says, then he appeared to James. Now, we don't know exactly which James this is. There's two James that are disciples. Personally, this is probably the half-brother of Jesus, author of James. Then to all the apostles. In order to be an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. That's just Paul's way of saying, I just, I missed it. I missed being a disciple. But he still, by his grace, appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles. It's funny. He calls himself the least of the apostles, yet he's, he's pretty much the most prominent and prolific and has written most of the New Testament. But he calls himself the least of the apostles because he's, he feels unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. These other brothers, they walked with Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Personally, I wanted to kill everybody who believed in him. Yet God saved me. God changed me. He called me to be an apostle. And it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You, you see this, this theme of, of being in vain. His grace towards me was not in vain. It was not useless. I know it. I've experienced it's trustworthy in me. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that with, is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preached Christ crucified, and you believed. See, that's, that's what Paul has in mind when, when he says, we are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that there are no resurrection. If Christ wasn't raised, then all of these are liars. And if they've lied about the resurrection, then everything else they've said must be thrown out. If they lied about the resurrection, take the New Testament and throw it away. But that's not even the worst of it. Because if there is no bodily resurrection, then Jesus Christ has not been raised. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. If our preaching is useless, your faith is useless. We're a bunch of liars. And then fifthly, you are still in your sins. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What the gospel offers is the forgiveness of sin. That's what the gospel offers you. It does not offer you a healthy life. It does not offer you a pain-free life. It does not offer you a guarantee to not be sick. It does not offer you a pathway to success. It does not offer you a life of comfort. It does not offer you popularity. What the gospel offers you is the forgiveness of your sins. And that is more important than anything else. But if you take the resurrection out of the gospel, then the gospel loses its power and you are still in your sin. Because they were paid for in full by Christ on the cross. 
And this work was validated by the resurrection. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then sin killed him, death held him, and he is condemned, and he cannot provide salvation for you. When Paul says, your faith is futile, it's useless, and you're still in your sins, the implication there is is that we need a Savior And if Christ isn't the Savior, then we are still in our sin. And we are guilty before a holy and just God. And we will die in our sin. As a matter of fact, that's the next consequence. That those who have died are lost. Verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ has not been raised, the power of sin has not been broken, then those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are gone. They've perished. There is no hope. They died in their sins and are today in hell. This is the logical progression of consequences if you take away the resurrection. And then lastly, Paul says that if there is no resurrection, Our message is useless and your faith is useless and we're a bunch of liars and you're still in your sin. Then our hope in Christ is for this life only. And we are above all men to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Church, listen, the the core of our hope is that we will live together with God for eternity in glorified bodies. Our hope is not for this life. That is not our hope. Our hope doesn't Stay here. Our hope doesn't land here. Our hope doesn't remain here. Our hope in Christ is not just Christ, you'll make things better for me on earth. Now, the gospel makes things better on earth. But our hope, our sure and lasting hope, is a bodily resurrection from the dead. That one day our bodies come out of the grave and we no longer remain dead, but we come to life and we dwell with Him physically in glorified bodies for all eternity. That is our hope. And if you take away the resurrection, then you take away that hope.
And a hope that's only good for this life is a hope that is useless. And we're above all men to be pitied. Why? Because we've believed a lie. Because these men, and even today, countless people around the world have given their lives for a lie if you take away the resurrection. And we are to be pitied. We've wasted our lives. And we're still going to end up in hell. These are the logical consequences of denying a bodily resurrection. Now, what a downer of a sermon. And I told Alicia, I'm like, either I go to verse 19 and it's a shorter sermon and it's sort of a downer sermon. Or I'm, I'm going to have to go like all the way to 24 and then we're going to be here a while. And so we're stopping at 19, but I don't want to because there's a, a, a very important word in verse 20 and that is but. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You might believe that. And if you believe that, then these are the consequences. This isn't inconsequential. This is central, the resurrection. So you might believe there is no bodily resurrection. And you may not believe that Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead. But the fact is, the facts are Christ has been raised. That's the truth. That's the fact. That's where we'll pick up next week. But listen, I'm preaching to a bunch of church people. I get that. But what is it that you believe? What is it that you believe? Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Listen, if you do not, you are not a Christian. You're not. That's what Paul just said. If you don't believe it, you're still in your sins. Church, we must, we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to give some reasons why that's trustworthy, why it's a fact. We'll, we'll get there. We cannot be ashamed. We cannot be scared to make that statement as fact. Regardless of what the Discovery Channel might say, regardless of what the History Channel might say, regardless of what your college professors might say, what your neighbors may say, you bunch of you people are a bunch of wackos. You really believe that guy raised from the dead? You better believe it. Everything hinges on it. Everything hinges on it. What is it that you believe? Jesus Christ offers to everyone who believes the forgiveness of sin. He offers that to you. If you believe that Christ was crucified for your sins, buried, and risen again on the third day, then Christ offers forgiveness of sin. That is your greatest need.
That's my greatest need. And all we have to do is believe. That's the weight of this text. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.